Please turn to Genesis 1, 24 through 31. Should be easy to find. It's in the first couple pages of the Bible. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have a little ones, first grade and under, who'd like to go over for children's worship. Oh, wait, Luke. Don't go yet, man. We're going to go with Miss Brittany. There's not going to be anybody to meet you over there, man. Uh, and if you're visiting with us, uh, you may want to walk over there. Well, you will want to walk over there to get your kids registered with our volunteers so they can know uh, their various needs. I heard that Blake Barnes was going to be here today, and he's hard to impress. So I thought, I better use some PowerPoint slides today. I've got to, I got to look good. A few of you guys know Blake, and he's back there, and I'm going to embarrass him because he's, he's here. Good to see you, man. Welcome home. Welcome home. In July 2013, George Zimmerman was declared not guilty in the charge of second-degree murder in the 2012 shooting of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. And with that acquittal, a hashtag was born, a catchphrase uh, with which uh, we are all no doubt familiar, and it is Black Lives Matter. And with that phrase uh, soon came a movement. In December of that year, a counter-movement began, this one in support of defense Uh, the Defense of Law Enforcement Officers, and that movement was provocatively entitled Blue Lives Matter. So these two ideas and the groups of people that were associated with them duked it out for a few years into the 2016 election, which, as you all remember, was, you know, there's no, no social unrest whatsoever during that season. And then in that year, a new catchphrase decided to join the fray, proclaiming that All lives matter. So each phrase and each group associated with them, each has their merits and their failures. 
But I want to uh, have you consider what inspired the first person to say any of these things. What was it that made a person want to say that black lives matter or blue lives matter or all lives matter? What desire in their guts or in their mind bubbled up so that they felt like they had to say something? I think that desire was a concern for justice. They believed that someone had been killed and justice had not been served, whether Trayvon Martin or a police officer or whomever. The deep within each of these statements was a desire for justice. A human life had been taken. A human life had been devalued. A life that was valuable and justice must be served. So if I'm going to give these phrases all the benefit of the doubt, that's probably where they started. And most people in our country would say that life matters. That there's something important about human life. And these various movements kind of focus in and trying to say, oh, well, this group of lives is being devalued or is being treated more poorly than they ought. After all, don't we believe that all men were created equal and were endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights? We believe that, right? What does it mean? What is a human life worth? What rights are due to each human being? These are hard questions that as Christians we need to have processed. We need to be able to to hear our friends and our neighbors and see the signs and the things that they wear and to be able to engage with that in a redemptive way. So for the next eight weeks, we're going to dig into this question. What's a human? What's a human worth? We're going to take about four weeks laying our philosophical and theological groundwork. And then for four weeks, we're going to look at some outcroppings of that. How should we be living? How should we be thinking? How should we be talking and interacting? But there's a a, a problem, and this is it. Most people judge the value of a human life by that person's actions or potential. If you like to take notes or space in the back of your worship guide, I won't be saying next blank like I've been doing for way too many years. Instead, it'll just click, and it'll be up there, and you can write it down. So this is your first point. That's the last time I'll say that. Most people judge the value of a human life by that person's action or potential. Now, I don't know anybody that would be so cold or pragmatic to say it that way, but we operate this way. We judge the value of another person by the things they've done or the things they might be able to do. Let's start with some extreme examples, right? So we need look no further than laws in Europe and the United States concerning abortion and euthanasia. And I know we've had Roe v. Wade and all that. I, I knew that was coming, and that was part of the reason why we're talking about this now. But let's, let's just dig into some real facts. If you don't think that euthanasia or assisted suicide is something that happens regularly in the 21st century, think again. In the Netherlands in 2017, one out of every 25 deaths was a doctor-assisted suicide. Why? Well, it's a question of actions and potential actions. 
So if a person is elderly or has a severe health problem or has extreme emotional distress, the question is asked, well, what good are they going to do for society? What good do they have ahead of them, or are they just a drain on society's resources? These questions of actions and potential also come up when you're talking about abortion. This idea that a person's value rests in their actions and potential, it is baked into Western ethics. Whether you want to realize that or not. So if a fetus doesn't seem viable... Or maybe the child's going to have some kind of a mental handicap. Their value is deemed less. Did you know that 60 to 90% of pregnancies diagnosed with Down syndrome are aborted every year in the United States? Additionally, the overall rate of abortion in the United States is 18%. So in the United States in 2017, 18% of pregnancies, excluding miscarriages, ended in abortion. Now, in Louisiana, that was slightly less at 14%. Now, we sang a hymn of praise, I think last week, in response to the Supreme Court decision. These numbers probably aren't going to change that much. The Guttmacher Institute estimates that abortion will go down only 10% in the United States with this decision. Why are these things happening in our country? and around the world because we value the lives of people based upon their actions or their potential. And what is the potential of a fetus with a mental handicap? It's judged less. And if a fetus is a threat to a woman's health or financial well-being or sense of security, well, that becomes a very easy decision to make when we're going by this way of thinking. Now, that's the very extreme side of the discussion. Let's make this a little less intense for a moment. I can see y'all are all nervous already. That's okay. So let's imagine, I've already picked on Todd. Let's pick on Todd again. So let's imagine you go to Todd's house for a dinner party. Todd puts on a great party, and there's someone there that you haven't met. How do you get to know that person? So you sit down with your plate, or you sit down with your beverage, you introduce yourself, you ask their name, and then what do you ask them? I bet you know already. What do you do? What do you do? And he says, well, I'm just wrapping up med school, and I'm about to start my residency. Ah, he says that. You think pretty highly of this guy, right? Now, let's rewind for a second. Let's imagine instead you say, so uh, what do you do? And he says, well, still live with my parents. I'm really into comic books. I've got a great collection. I'm thinking about becoming a Twitch streamer so I can be a video game influencer. Well, when you compare those two guys, right? You might think more highly of one than the other. Let's rewind it again. Let's imagine that the video game enthusiast is actually 11 years old. Oh, well, that's different, right? And so we we feel very differently about this person now. Why do we do this? Because we value people based upon their actions or potential, whether they're realizing their potential or squandering their potential. So yeah, I I, I imagine that all of you are against euthanasia and abortion, but we still judge people to bits based upon their actions and their potential. We do it every day. And how about your view of yourself? What is the measure of a man? 
How do you value your own life, your own legacy, your name? How many of you, us, struggle with depression because we feel like we haven't fulfilled our potential? We didn't do all we could or should do. It happens for many at midlife. It happens to many later on in life as they look back on the years they've spent. And it can happen earlier in life than you might think. There's a lot of pressure in our society to succeed, to achieve, to be all that we can be. And so we look at our own lives and we judge our own value and worth based upon our actions and potential. But this is a lethally dangerous way of thinking. This way of valuing or devaluing a human life starts with a faulty premise and it ends in tragedy. It starts with a faulty premise and it ends in tragedy. The starting premise isn't true. The dignity and worth of a human life doesn't come from their actions or their potential. That, my friends, is a lie. But when we inhale those fumes of hell, when we start to think and operate and judge people according to that lie... It leads to deadly results. We start to pressure ourselves and others to achieve what they can't or shouldn't achieve. We expect ourselves and others to control what we can't or shouldn't control. Why? Because if value is tied to your actions and potential, then what? The people who can do the most, the people who can do the best, the people who can achieve the most, they are more valuable than all the rest. They're above the fray, and they are the ones most to be treasured and heard. And everyone below is worth less because value is rooted in actions and potential. This way of thinking breeds pride. It invites us to trample on others on our way to the top. This way of valuing people promotes individual success and thriving at the expense of every other person and, indeed, the collective. This way of thinking is survival of the fittest retrofitted to humanity. And I hate to say it on the 3rd of July, but this is how your nation thinks. This is how your neighbors think. This is how your friends think. Dare I say, even we regularly think this way. This way of thinking, this way of valuing people is endemic to Western society at the very least where the value of the individual is so amplified. But the Bible cuts across this lie and says, no, 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 that's wrong. That's completely incorrect. You're looking for the value of a life in the wrong place. So how does the Bible respond? Here's the biblical principle. A person's value is found in who they are, not in what they do. A person's value is found in who they are, not in what they do. Now, this notion is quite foreign to the American public. Identity, who I am, lets something to be discovered, explored, experimented with, and ultimately it's something that's knit together with what I do. But that's backwards. And it's why when we're meeting someone, the first thing we ask is, so what do you do? As though doing defines the being. As though doing actions potential is what makes up the man or the woman. But that's just not a biblical way of thinking. Being precedes doing. 
And who you are is an objective thing that exists, is defined, whether you know it or not. And it's not something that you create. A person's value is found in who they are, not in what they do. And if you're not defined by what you do, well, then what are you? And who are you? I mean, that's like the billion-dollar question, right? Who are you? What are you? Well, here we go. Every human being is an image of God. Every human being is an image of God. Though incomplete and imperfect, that's what you are. And this is the amazing notion that we read in our text today. Who are you? What are you? You're an image of God, though incomplete and imperfect. Let's look at it together. Verse 26 in Genesis 1. I'll read through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God Bless them. That's who you are. That's what you are. You are a thing shaped like God. That's the most basic definition of what you are. A thing shaped like God. In the meantime, the world around us doesn't know this. And there's been a lot of discussion and disagreement about who each of us is. And many of us have joined the fray in those conversations and in those battles. Our world is at war with itself about life, about the value of life, about which lives matter, about which lives need protecting in contrast to others, about who has or doesn't have the rights that they ought to have and what those rights are. And what has grieved me to my bones in the last two years is hearing Christians joining these debates and arguments. And rather than speaking biblical truth, they're instead parroting talking points from CNN or Fox News or OAN or Twitter. What I don't hear is Christians talking about these important issues from the perspective of the Bible. The Bible talks about these issues in a radically different way from the conversations that are happening in St. Tammany Parish. And I'm hoping over the next eight weeks or so to drink deeply of this idea that you and every human being is an image of God. This is who we are, and it's from there, from that identity, before we have done anything good or bad... It's from that identity that every human being derives their value and worth. If we could grasp this idea, and if we could voice this idea in the conversations that we're a part of, the conversations we have with other people about these matters, do you know what would happen if FPC started talking and operating biblically regarding these matters? You know what we'd do? FPC, if we start talking and acting differently... We won't fix systemic racism. Eh, We're not going to do it. 
FPC isn't going to solve the problem of abortion in the United States or euthanasia in the Netherlands. But do you know what we can do? We can change the conversation within our families and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our friendships. And we won't convince everyone of the truth of the Bible, but we'll be a different voice, a refreshing voice, a true voice in the midst of a medley of nonsense and lies. And if we will speak the truth of the image of God into these hard matters, you know what might happen? The people that you know and love might actually find the gospel of Jesus to be not only relevant, but to be the most important message on the airwaves today. But it's going to take just a handful of Christians to have some guts who are willing to say, no, the value of a human life isn't based on the color of their skin or the badge on their chest. A person's value doesn't come from their actions or their potential. Every human being is of inestimable worth, (laughs) remarkable, unbelievable worth, because they are images of God. Because of that, every human being is worthy of love. So let's chew on this idea of being created in the image of God. So every human being, if you have the the DNA of a human in you, regardless of your works or potential, every human being was made by God to reflect or to image forth something about God. Every human being was made by God to reflect or image forth something about God. So every one of us is like a mirror, okay? And let's imagine God is the sun in the sky, right? So when we look at human beings, we're not looking at the sun. We're looking at reflections of the sun. You are a reflection of God. But are we perfect reflections of God? Not a chance. Not, not, not at all, right? Not just because of sin, though, but because we're creatures. Even Adam and Eve, before sin came into the world, they were not a complete image of God. And sin only complicated that. So we are sinners and we're creatures, so we are incomplete and imperfect. There's only been one perfect image of God on this earth. Look in your worship guide. Uh, Let's think about this. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the what? Glory of God. Have you ever wondered why Paul said that? Well, of course, Paul, of course we fall short of the glory of God. We're creatures and we're sinners. Why would we ever expect to live up to the glory of God? Because we're images of God. We were made to reflect his glory, but we've fallen short. Here's another text in your worship guide from Colossians 1. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So where we have fallen short as creatures and as sinners in reflecting the character of God, the glory of God, Jesus never failed. He was the perfect image of God. So when you look at Jesus, it's like staring at the sun in a perfect mirror. The glory of God is blazingly complete in Jesus Christ because he is God in human flesh. But when you look at any other human being, you see something less than that. And it's not just because we're creatures, we're sinners too. 
our mirrors have been shattered. So while they are warped and distorting because of sin, we can still see glimpses of God in the shadows. And that is where human value and worth come from. The value and worth of a human life doesn't even come from how well a person reflects God. They may reflect God really, really poorly, but the point still stands that their worth is found in the reality that God made them in his image, though imperfect and incomplete. So our worth and our value, the worth of any human being, is not in any way tied to our works or potential. It's all found in this identity that God gave us as image bearers. Now you may think, well, we sinned. Didn't that screw it up? Are we no longer in the image of God? Hold your finger in Genesis 1 and let's flip back eight chapters to Genesis 9. So kids, what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve? We learned about it this morning. There's only like four of you here, but y'all know this story. What'd they do? You can say it, Mike. They ate, well, they ate an undisclosed fruit. That's correct. They ate a fruit and they sinned, right? They sinned. And what happened after that in the world, kids? Did things go really great after that? What happened to their kids? Cain killed Abel, right? Somebody went like that. That was, a, that was a, an acceptable answer. And that killing only continued, and it got worse and worse and worse until God finally brought a flood upon the earth. So things got real bad real quick. So you might think, none of these people reflect God's image. It's wrecked. But after the flood, the ark rests on Mount Ararat. Noah and his family make covenant with God, or God makes covenant with them. And in Genesis 9... We see this. Let's read verses 1 through 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does that sound like? It sounds like Genesis 1. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that, li- every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I gave you everything. So some things have changed. Back in Genesis 1, he said, I give you all the green things for food. Now he says, I give you all the the, the living things for food. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Listen to this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So some things have changed since Genesis 1. Some things have not. And one is that every human being, though the mirror is shattered, they still image forth something of God. It may be warped, it may be distorted, but every human being does. Now this might not sound very Calvinistic, so I decided to go to Calvin to help me out here. So this is from his commentary on Genesis. John Calvin says, Men are indeed unworthy of God's care if respect be had only to themselves. But since they bear the image of God engraven on them, he deems himself violated in their person. Think about that. Thus, although they have nothing of their own by which they obtain the favor of God, he looks upon his own gifts in them and is thereby excited to love and to care for them. This doctrine, however, is to be carefully observed that no one can be injurious to his brother without wounding God himself. 
Were this doctrine deeply fixed in our minds, we should be much more reluctant than we are to inflict injuries. What is it about a person that gives their life value? It is the image of God in them. Now, what about God is reflected in every person? Well, we're going to dig into that next week. And we're going to start to paint the picture that we've only begun to sketch today. But where I want to leave you today is with this idea. Every human being, every human being, carries a divinely derived dignity and worth, whether they realize it or live it out. Every human being has a divinely derived dignity and worth, whether they realize it or live it out, which means we probably need to change how we view people. We're so trapped by the world's way of thinking that value is produced by actions or or, or potential, but it isn't. You aren't what you do. You aren't a human doing. You're a human being. And what are you? What is your being? You are an image of God, a divinely derived, divinely shaped, God-reflecting being that stands apart from everything else in the created order. If we started to think of people that way, of ourselves and others, how would that change our interactions? A couple weeks ago, I was at the Columbia Theater out in Hammond. Audrey had her uh, stage rehearsal for her ballet recital. So J.J. and I were waiting for her in a hallway filled with running, screaming little girls and a bunch of tired mothers. And as I was looking around the room, I had this thought. This is the way pastors think. These children and these women all have souls. They have this invisible part of them uh, that I can't see or perceive. There's something very special about every one of these humans. Even the one over there that was keep screaming and running and distracting me from my book. Even the one over there that I heard say something really, really rude. Every one of these people is an absolute miracle. And in every one of them, there's something beautiful of God to be seen and known. This is a radical way of thinking. It sounds humanistic, but I'm convinced it's a very biblical way of thinking. That these people are all incomplete, imperfect images of God, and that makes them dignified, valuable, and beautiful. If we thought that way, if we valued people as we ought, if we valued people as God does, our dinner parties would sound very different. Maybe we won't ask what they do. Maybe (laughs) we'll start asking insane questions like, so you're the only uh, Steve Roberts uh, on the planet. God made you a very particular way. There's nothing accidental about you. So let's spend this entire dinner trying to figure out what it is that God has imprinted on you that is so unique and different and beautiful. Let's spend this entire meal together asking what God wants to do in you and through you. And then we spend the whole night trying to discern a glimpse of Yahweh God in them. That sounds psychotic, but... What if we loved our spouses like that? What if we treated our kids like that? What if we talked to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our enemies 
with this kind of transcendent awe, something that borders on worship. And what if we viewed ourselves this way? That we're not defined by who we think we are, by what we've done, how we failed or succeeded. We're defined by one thing, the image of God imprinted on us by a master craftsman. This is just the beginning. I realize you probably have a lot of questions. That's kind of the point. We're going to spend eight weeks or so unpacking this thing, and it's going to be a wild ride. But my hope is that we change how we relate to other image bearers, that you'll change how you talk about other image bearers. We live in a world that doesn't get this, that doesn't believe this. Democrats don't get it. Republicans don't get it. Independents don't get it. No social group or spectrum gets this. This concept of humanity is a different thing, a God thing, a Bible thing, and it's a gospel thing, which we'll see. And if you and I could grab a hold of this truth and live into it, we would be the weirdest people in town. And we'd be a breath of fresh air in a toxic wasteland of lies. Are you tired of the smell of this place yet? Are you tired of the hate and confusion and war? Then join me. Let us be the voice, not of reason, but of God's truth in a broken world that is packed full of images of God. Let's pray. Oh God, how far we have fallen short of the glory of Christ who is the image of the invisible God. Lord, you would have been um, justified in walking away from creation. You would have been justified in never telling Noah to build the ark and just wiping us out. But instead, you knew restoration could come. And so, Lord, as those who trust Jesus who have already experienced forgiveness and the beginnings of restoration of your image, help us to go out these doors with a different song on our lips, a song of joy, a song of truth, a song of redeeming love. Because there are so many people in this world who are hurting and who are at war with each other and with themselves over these very difficult issues. So help us, Lord, to be a voice that brings rest, hope, and peace to the gospel of Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.